Want to discover leading strategies, share experiences and connect with fellow consultancy leaders from companies like EY, PwC or Porsche Consulting? Then join us in Munich for the Leaders in Consulting Conference on the 27th of June, a one-day event exclusively for consultancy leaders like you. Places are limited, so head to leadersinconsulting.com to claim your ticket now. That's leadersinconsulting.com. See you there. We typically do not have the seven digits projects for, that last for years. Um, and, and so we are definitely in a situation where we, you know, every quarter, every month, we have to ensure that there's enough business. We need to put a lot of focus on project acquisition and uh, being present to our potential clients and, 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 and so on. So that's an important aspect of our professional life. And we are looking for um, a mix of, you know, traditional strategy project work and implementation support. And for some years now, we have also been increasingly relying on subscription services or a, a business model that you could call subscription service. Uh, these are consulting services that support the client on a daily basis and that are paid like a flat fee. And that's um, an addition to the traditional business model that helps us also in down times to have revenue and to stay close to the customer. Welcome to the Leaders in Consulting podcast, the show that delivers cutting edge insights from other leaders in consulting companies. If you want a summary of learnings from each episode or you want to meet other consulting leaders at our monthly in-person meetups, head to leadersinconsulting.com and subscribe to our newsletter. Please note, you must be a partner or MD of a consulting company with at least 40 employees to be eligible to join our in-person meetups. Today, we have Nikolai Stickel joining us. He's at the Star Corporation. Nikolai, welcome to our show. Yes, thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure. So tell me about your company, um, the Star Corporation. What are you doing? Well, Star Consulting is um, a consulting company that serves automotive clients, uh, particularly so those clients that are mastering sales and service challenges. We were founded in as an in-house uh, company uh, at Daimler around 25 years ago. And today we are an autonomous consulting practice with a strong footprint Uh, in manufacturing, particularly the car and mobility industry. Mm -hmm. And what's your job at your company? Yeah, as uh, head of, of Star Consulting, my role is to ensure that we have an attractive consulting service portfolio and that we deliver successfully against our promises and client expectations. How does your day-to-day -day job then in practice look like if you could bucket your 100% of your time into, I don't know, recruiting, sales, project time, roughly? Well, I think a lot is dedicated to sales concepts, offerings, um, uh, actually uh, supporting my colleagues to um, deliver good um, consulting um, uh, quotes and offerings. And um, I, I guess that's something like 30 to 40 percent and maybe uh, another 30 percent that are dedicated to really delivery and steering the operation. Um, probably 20 percent dedicated to internal stuff, particularly employee HR topics, um, such as recruiting and performance evaluation and development plans and then 10 to 15% for administrative uh, activities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very detailed, very good. Um, can you give me a proxy of the size and growth of your company? Uh, we are around 100 consultants who work for clients in Europe, North America, and China. Mm -hmm. And the clients you work for, are they originally German-based companies that have projects overseas, or do you also have clients that are based overseas that you help? Well, actually, 
we have all three type of uh, client situations. We have German OEMs that we work for. That's the biggest uh, group of, of clients. We also have um, brands from uh, international brands that sell in Germany or in the German or European market that we support. And then we have also clients, uh, international clients that we work for in their home country, like in the US or in China. Uh, where are you hiring right now for? So do, is, is your company mainly based um, in Germany with German speaking consultants that are then sent overseas? Or do you also have like other regions where you have people placed? Uh, we have people also in the US and also in China, but the main recruiting market at the moment, the most job openings are in Europe and most of them in Germany. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. How uh, I know uh, from a lot of conversations with other consulting leaders that it's not an easy market to find and hire good talent for consulting companies. So how do you do that in your company? Well, that's true. That, <laughs> that's not an easy one. But what we did is we intensified the usage of social media recently. So we do not only uh, work with our website and LinkedIn, but also with Facebook and Insta to reach a broader audience. And um, at the same time, what we also did is we canceled the office location as a necessary, uh, necessary prerequisite uh, for many of, of the job openings. That means that we accept home office in some jobs as a standard. Um, this is an experiment, but we already have the first colleagues working from home permanently. And so far, it's working quite well. So I want to dive deep into, into both. Uh, let's first tackle the social media part. What do you do exactly on Facebook and Instagram? And can you measure the success of that? Or um, is it hard to pinpoint what impact this has uh, for the amount of people that um, apply for you? Well, what we actually do is that we use those channels to uh, reach out to a broader audience. We do this with advertisements. And the the um, the difference to traditional channels is really that people don't send the full CV package, the full application. They don't send the full application package. They just send you a quick uh, uh, response. Yes, I'm interested. Click one, click two. Yes, I'm interested. Send. Okay. And after that, we pick up the phone and um, talk to uh, to the people that um, that are interested. Um, which really shortens the um, the process and also lowers the barrier for people to to connect with your company. And that um, that that we we do see uh, in the number of uh, people we talk to that is increasing and and that helps. Yeah. Is the quality then also high enough? Because I assume that uh, maybe then uh, you have a higher amount of people that are not fitting. Um, the the exact um, description of of talent you look for, or is it is it not that bad? And you still say, well, you may have more, but it's still okay. That that's true. We we have two challenges with with that approach. The first one is the quality in terms of ratio. You talk to a lot of people that at the end of the day are not are are, are not suitable at the end of the day. But the second challenge is also that at least the way we tried it, we we made sure that a manager from our department really called the person that was um, uh, sending us um, a, a quick uh, note through the social uh, media channels, which means that we spend a lot of time from very qualified people uh, doing all these phone calls. Um, and, and that's, you know, this is now in a pilot phase that was okay in a pilot phase, but, you know, as a standard process, that wouldn't be um, a wise thing to do. So, um, yeah. yeah. It's interesting insights. Um, do you leverage a company that, with the technology to, to, um, to put out the ads and to make it simple to apply or did you do it or do you do it yourself? Well, we, we could do it internally because we don't we, we do have um, social media consulting that we also sell um, externally. 
But in order to be very fast and also not to distract colleagues from other projects they have, we used um, an external company to do this um, in, in the pilot phase. So currently we are using a supplier, a marketing agency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very good. And uh, now coming to, to the other part where you said uh, something very interesting, and I see a, a struggle between the the, the, the basically uh, two options in the market. The one is um, fully remote opportunity to work for, uh, where you just sometimes have to come to the office or the client, or you are obliged to uh, still fly to clients or to come to the office two days a week. Um, what what impact did, did this opening up of your model have in the amounts of people that were uh, applying for your company? What we did is we, we, we have now people that work in Hamburg, where we don't have an office, or in other places in, in Germany, where we uh, do not have uh, or had an office before. Um, so they are really working from the home office. We also have colleagues that work now from Spain um, or from other parts of Europe um, because they, you know, something changed in their life where their center of life somehow moved to a different location. And in former times, we would have lost them. And so that was really um, an opportunity to retain those people. Um, but what we also see is that there are challenges going with, with, with that model because somehow you have to bridge the distance um, if you're not sitting in one room um, anymore. Sure. Yeah. So um, short, uh, like really pragmatical question. How do you solve it with the contracts then if someone is moving out of Germany? Because then it's probably not as simple anymore um, to cover everything uh, that you need to cover. Yeah, uh, be it health insurance, the whole tax, taxing stuff, you probably need a contact that is okay for that country or whatnot. Well, it, it only works quite simple if you have a location in that country. And we do have a location in Spain. So in that case, that works quite well. Yeah. 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 I also ask because uh, nowadays there are a couple of companies that offer services exactly for that. Uh, one of them is, for example, Deal, D -E -E And um, for a fixed fee a month, you can basically, um, have an employer of record in any country um, in the world almost now. And that simplifies this whole remote thing as well. So you're even more free to um, to let people move around, even though you might not have a, a head, headquarter there or, or office in this country. Yeah, yeah. We, we know that model. Uh, we've also looked at it and actually we're also using it. Ah, okay, cool. We, we started to use it. Um, again, it's just a pilot. Um, it, there are just uh, one or two contracts currently that we that we have. But uh, yeah, we are currently also using that one. Yeah, you're quite innovative. And it, I, I like that you say you, you're trying it and you're learning. And I mean, there are some things that you probably will change if you want to roll it out. But um, it speaks to some entrepreneurial mindset that you have in your company. Um, and I like it a lot. So... Um, how how has this hybrid model then where some people are coming to the office or seeing each other more regularly and some people are, you probably never see unless you make them come somewhere? How did this affect um, the whole um, way you work together? Well, the whole work really moved more into Microsoft Teams <laughs> to uh, to put it in, in very simple words. But um, you, you somehow need to, to bridge that a physical distance. And from an employee perspective, there are, um, I guess, three things that we try to look at. First, your individual puzzle piece of work must fit perfectly into the larger puzzle picture. So you, you need to know what your contribution is and how it contributes to the bigger project or work, thing you are working on. Second, the fact that you do not work in the same room must somehow be compensated for by more intense communication. You need to be connected not just to your boss or not just to some colleagues you're working with, but to the broader organization in some way to feel connected and to get the information that you need and also to be able to speak out and address things that, that are important to you. And um, I, I think the third aspect is that there needs to be a, a close alignment 
um, of uh, between your work expectations and the working results somehow on a daily basis so that you are not you know working in one direction for days or even weeks and then there's the big um, misunderstanding oh what happened yeah so if 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 these are the three things we feel are important to bridge the um, the fact that we we have a greater physical distance now. And how do you do that in practice now, this whole bridging of these uh, three topics? Well, to give you an example, on the communication piece, we introduced a lot of meetings uh, um, that are cross silos. So we did this on a company level, the all-star meeting, where really everybody around the world is invited and where we share um, projects, initiatives, competencies, uh, where we introduce people to what we do at other different locations and so on and so forth. And we do this now at almost every level in order to ensure that you are somehow connected to all the different areas of the business. Um, we do this on a in a more operational sense with dailies so that you and your team and your working team and the project team really meet in the morning at eight o'clock just for 30 minutes to really quickly stand up and say, this is what I have on my agenda. Is there any connection we have to do the, during the day that we need to think of? And that helps to have a bit more of the feeling of we are one team. So I can relate a lot because we are a fully remote working company mm -hmm. and um, we are still learning, but I think we get better and better. Um, maybe it's a little bit harder if you work on project based um, on project basis, but uh, what helped a lot is to have, um, we, we use OKRs to have like a, a goal setting process that is a top down and bottom up. And then everybody knows what they are contributing to the whole. And it's, it should be always measurable and, and time, time bound so that you know if that person is working in the right direction. And then, um, in a weekly meeting, um, each, well, we are a small company yet. Yeah. So we are not a hundred people yet. Um, we are, we are like 16 now. So it's still possible that, um, each, each team, Uh, shortly reports on their own progress um, of, of uh, their goals when they have something to report. And that helps a lot. And um, we are trying right now also these um, more randomly uh, weekly meetings where we just put three, four people, so smaller groups together in a half an hour meeting. And um, and we have obligatory um, company meetings twice a year with a whole week at least uh, where people come together so that you see one another. Do you also have this... Um, um, way of bringing people together for a certain period of time, sometimes a year? Yeah. So we do this um, at least four times a year when we have our, we call it still sure fix, where we, where all the consultants come together or at least should or could come together. Um, typically it's something between 50 and 70% of people who really physically meet and the others are there for the meeting part uh, virtually But then we have the barbecue part where uh, all the people that meet physically also come together in a more informal uh, way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. So I strongly believe that, I mean, if you look at two consultancies, one offers this um, more remote setting, the other one not, and everything else being equal, that well, the one offering the remote setting has a big advantage because on the one hand, you can get talent from all over Germany or even Europe, or maybe even if you're open to it uh, worldwide, um, if they have the right talent and language capabilities. Um, and and you very likely will keep talent longer because as you said, if someone for personal reasons cannot stay in one region anymore or doesn't want to, you don't have to say goodbye. Uh, you can still keep that person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have to. I mean, when did you start this whole uh, test about... Um, offering this remote work option? We had one or two exceptions that are already 10 or eight years old. But really after uh, um, Corona, we looked at it in a more uh, systematical way. And now we, we offered it multiple times and, and are also using it. So it's really not that old yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we would have to have a conversation again in three to five years because I would be interested in knowing or finding out um, if it affects uh, the retention rate of talent. So if you can really keep talent longer or if it doesn't have an impact. I would guess it has an impact because 
where the whole industry doesn't do it yet. So in the end, um, yeah, there's a big plus for you to offer it. Yeah. Well, it, it could have impact in, in both directions. Either that people are not that connected anymore to the company. Um, that's at least a working hypothesis that some people have. Or the other way around, that people really love the company because they have so much flexibility in uh, and uh, for their uh, other private priorities, which is also um, then a good plus. Uh, we need to see what you know what bottom line is is better. Um, uh, we at least uh, try to go uh, down the road where we offer more flexibility and where we try to also. Um, make usage of talents that are not willing to uh, relocate to Böblingen or to Munich. Um, and uh, so far, it, it, for us, it feels like uh, a good strategy, a good, it, it's worth trying. Yeah. And it has a nice side effect that, as you said, it's not about FaceTime anymore. Uh, someone is here, so that's why he or she is working. It's about um, yeah, looking at the results that someone produces. Uh, so it forces you as a company to look at work differently, um, which um, I also think is one one main obstacle that some leaders of companies in general have. They think, well, if I don't know if they're working anymore, um, how do I know that they're working? <laughs> yeah. While it's not about the work, it's about the results. Yeah. So it's a mindset shift a little bit uh, for some companies. And um where some will probably only change when they have a big pain and see that they don't win talent anymore or lose a lot of talent. Yeah, And it's also um, an opportunity for companies to uh, become a little bit more structured on what is really the expectation towards your work, your workforce. You know, you're not as a boss walking around and telling somebody, hey, do this and tomorrow do that. You need to sit down and, and uh, based on roles, Think about what is, you know, the, the contribution of this role. What are the accountabilities? What are the working results? How do I measure it? And once this is defined, everybody can be happy uh, because you look at the working results and you say, well, job done. Wonderful. Exactly. But it's work. You have to do it once. And it's not easy if you never did it before. Um, so, yeah, kudos for doing it. Very good. Now let's switch uh, topics, uh, something that is very dear to my heart, um, uh, which um, which we will cover right now. Um, and I, I'm going to start with the question, um, how, how do you ensure financial stability at, as a consultancy? Well, you usually uh, you have project work and once the project is over, people are on the beach. And if you're not um, as an SAP consulting company that has like two to five year contracts and it's with hundreds of people and you just know they're going to be there forever, um, how do you make sure that, well, you you still make money and maybe you also ensure yourself a little bit for potential downturns that always come time from time to time again, even though the consulting industry, um, I would say, was blessed over the last uh, eight to 10 years almost. Yeah, yes, but on that, so we, we, we typically do not have the seven digits projects for, that last for years. Um, and and so we are definitely in a situation where we, you know, every quarter, every month, we have to ensure that there's enough business. We need to put a lot of focus on project acquisition and uh, being present to our potential clients and, and 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 so on. So that's an important aspect of our professional life. And we are looking for um, a mix of, you know, traditional strategy project work and implementation support. And for some years now, we have also been increasingly relying on subscription services or a, a business model that you could call subscription service. Uh, these are consulting services that support the client on a daily basis and that are paid like a flat fee. And that's um, an addition to the traditional business model that helps us also in down times to have revenue and to stay close to the customer. How did this uh, evolve? So what, if you remember, how did the first uh, recurring revenue contract um, get negotiated and, and signed in the end? How did you come up with this? Well, to be honest, that was a request from one of our customers around 10 years ago. Um, um, 
uh, a German OEM company that asked if we could help their dealer network to um, in in you know in supporting them with um, parts management and parts ordering uh, because that's something where a lot of dealers and parts managers you know they're not at that time they're what not that familiar with going into the system uh, looking at the reports really trusting the numbers there were still more or less many of them taking uh, their professional experience in what do I order for next month. So gut and feeling maybe. Gut feeling. And uh, we supported them that we went into the systems, looked at the numbers, did the reports, made suggestions, communicated this to, to uh, the parts managers, and we called it a wingman approach. So we were the second pilot on, on the plane supporting the first pilot with information and with um, recommendations. And that worked so well that uh, until today, we have some of these dealers under contract and still do that work. And that's what we try to you know, extend now to other parts of the business and to other clients. Can you give me one or two other examples of recurring revenue services uh, that you offer? You know, we, we do this uh, around implementation projects where users uh, need to go through a change process where they need to get familiar with the system where they need to also sometimes to change their behavior and in those situations it's really um, uh, very beneficial to sit together once a week for half an hour or an hour with with your um, um, with, with the um, um, people of the client organization uh, look at the numbers, look at the last week, what happened, how can we tweak some implementation measures in order to optimize uh, something again or to where is a little bit training needed because a new person came on board and didn't have the whole training package yet. And, you know, you can really make sure that the momentum stays high and that the implementation goes well that and um, maybe you didn't have that problem but uh, maybe you had how did you overcome that obstacle if you had it well to be honest from the very beginning we were always a consulting company that positioned themselves as um, a, a practice that is also focused on implementation work so we do not only do strategy otherwise it would have probably a bit uh, more difficult um, and then there are two aspects that are really helpful also internally. The first one is continuous cash flow. So every manager who is in charge of a cost location or, or of his cost center or business center, profit center, um, is benefiting by really um, getting some revenue every month um, throughout the year, which, which helps. Um, but then there's also this uh, client intimacy uh, where, where you, are, you stay close to a customer, you really understand um, what the current situation is. And there are many um, instances where that was actually the starting point again for a new project or to gain the insight for new initiatives or new proposals. And that's also something where managers or consulting people feel after a time that this could be of can be of value yeah yeah that's what i thought about it uh, when i heard it for the first time what you said it's a perfect way to market um, potential projects because in the end how do you sell projects as a consultant you have to identify a need first and you have to have a personal relationship when both come together well um, then you can say hey by the way you just told me that you have this need we have a nice way of probably solving it should we sit down and that's how everything gets started and it's so hard to get this first meeting when you're not in touch with a potential client or you just check in once a year or twice a year. Um, so it's it's amazing if you have a weekly touch point or a regular touch point um, with your with your clients and they trust you and they know you deliver and um, and you enable your people to ask maybe from time to time. And that is maybe a question. Do you enable your people uh, somehow to regularly ask a couple of discovery questions to find out if there are other problems, or do they just actively listen? Well, just this morning we had a call when when we talked 
also about subscription services again and uh, to think about, you know, the uh, if, if that could be a good idea to, to more systematically look at all our project offerings and to include this already at the very beginning. You, you don't have to buy it, but please, Mr. Customer, have a look. We be, uh, be aware this is an option you have and that we can talk about later later on in the project. And uh, the the one question that we we try to ask our clients when it comes to the end of the project is what what how do you feel when we are gone is do you feel okay and safe everything will work very well or what could happen what do you foresee will happen during um the um after things are implemented and uh, we are not there anymore and very often there there are things like yes, we want to. You know, it, it should be a sustainable project success, and uh, this, this is important to everybody. But of course, we know people are changing. You know, uh, we know that people are refocusing on other initiatives that come up. We know that budgets are away, and um, maybe the focus will also slip to something else, and so on and so forth. So, by just asking, hey, uh, think about the time when the project is officially ended, but uh, you know operational work begins, what are the dangers that you foresee? This is sometimes the question where you get an answer um, that, that, that triggers you to come up with an offering and to say, hey, we have an idea, or to say, well, everything is fine, no support needed. Yeah, it's a powerful question. Everyone should ask that definitely at uh, the end or approaching the end of a project. Um, how how much in, in maybe percentage of revenue is your recurring side of the revenue from your whole business roughly? Well, meantime, I guess it's around between 10 and 15%. That's good. Yeah. And, and the other question, maybe that's harder if you don't track it really. Um, how much new uh, business could you get, generate because you have this constant contact? Because I would assume the impact is much higher than 10, 15% that you make as we go in revenue. That's a difficult one because we don't really measure it. My feeling would be that the customers we have those subscription services with are very loyal customers. So we are coming into projects again and again, and it's difficult to really say, is it of course, you know, is, is the reason the subscription service or is it something else? Because they like us for other reasons, but um, it it definitely contributes positively to, to the fact that we have a good uh, relationship and that we make revenue. Yeah, I've, I mean, I have one idea to to at least, uh, because I'm, I'm a mathematician by trade, I always look for ways to measure things. So what you maybe could do to find it out is, um, I don't want to impose, yeah, but... Um, just uh, build two clusters of clients that you want at the same amount of time um, and with the same kind of project size and then see how they evolved over time and then you probably see a difference um, and that's probably substantial. Um, so yeah, very well done and I, I'm a big fan of recurring revenue models. We ourselves have a pure recurring revenue model as a professional service firm and um, it has a lot of advantages, especially also for the client because he or she gets what they pay for. It's like a product. They know what they get. Um, they, they can budget for it. And um, and that's what we see. You evolve as a company. You evolve your your offerings. And you can, I mean, it's a perfect way to, to use your current clients to test new offerings, to develop something with them, to listen to them, and to grow with them. So um, I'm a huge fan. And it makes me, as a as an owner-founder of a company, sleep really well because I know... Um, my employees are paid for the next year. Yeah. Yeah. I always say, imagine there was no subscription service. There wouldn't be a single gym in your city. You know, that that's how some businesses survive. This is uh, such a powerful business model. It is. And I know so few consultancies in Germany that go the way you're going. I think you're the first one talking on the show that has a recurring revenue model that I know of. Um 
I talked to some in the United States and they are more uh, going in this direction. They are more, um, I would say they're one or two steps ahead also in terms of marketing and sales, how they structure that. Um, but yeah, um, kudos and uh, keep on doing that. Um, what advice would you give a, a consultancy leader who says, yeah, now that you're saying it, I'm buying into this whole concept. I want to try it myself. What should be the first step that he or she is doing in order to find something that uh, that can be turned into a recurring revenue model? Well, yeah, to, to, to be honest, I think subscription services can only be a, a supplement to your traditional consulting business model. But uh, what, what I hear clients say is more often and often to, we want to have sustainable project results. It's not something, you know, not just the slides and the board is saying, well done, and, and then we forget it. We, we want to have really raw value out of these initiatives. And uh, so if you ask the question, what happens after the project is done? What are the risks? Where do you foresee dangers? And if you start to have a dialogue on that one, that could be a starting point also to for you as a company to say, is it worth for us going there? Is that a competence that we have in-house? Could that be a business model that we want to pursue? Mm -hmm. Very good. So here, here, that's a very, very practical way of finding uh, your first um ways to create um, a recurring revenue model. And as said before, I think it has a much bigger impact than the pure revenue. It has a very, probably very high correlation to future revenue with these people. And as you're constantly in contact with your target group, you also learn current trends, I would assume. And then you can also generally adapt your offering for uh, proposals or the general market by just knowing much more about your target group because you're talking to so many of them. Right. Yeah. So now change of topics again. Um, let me ask you, what's what's your secret to winning new projects or clients? Well, Sammy, you know, we many years ago, we were founded within an OEM organization. Uh, and thus, our clients really expect a deep, deep business understanding and process insight. But uh, on top of that, what really evolved in recent years is the role of rapid prototyping. Um, rapid prototyping in the sense of, you know, as, as part of the conceptual process, of the sales process, pre-sales process, that helps a lot in, in, in many uh, instances. Can you give me a hands-on example where you recently won a project um, and you utilized rapid uh, prot prototyping? Yeah, well, uh, prototyping really enables um, to to gain insight um, and uh, in in terms of the feasibility and or usability of a product or a project result, and um, it is something that that really helps in in an early stage of of a design process. Um, and uh, such a prototype is really a concrete representation or a part of, of that future result that the clients wish to have and really reduces a lot of complexity of a tender or it also allows to um, really to discuss essential questions and to gain clarification at a very early stage. So when we do, you know, when we talk about a BI solution, when we talk about a website, a portal, um, we just talked this week uh, with um, an, an OEM. Um, we, we talked about an after-sales B2B portal for their dealers. Um, that, that's a typical situation where I would say, you know, let's make a quick prototype and um, take it to the client. And based on this prototype, we can facilitate a lot of discussions um, and we, we, uh, we save time and we we discussed the right questions. And um, I, I also assume that the client sees that you are hands-on people that that are, are quick and eager to show results. Um, it builds end. up trust, yeah. I had uh, Stefan Savu from Bearing Point on the show and he won the biggest contract of Bearing Point's history exactly with this approach. Uh, they built uh, a bigger prototype, so to say, 
um, showed how um, an end-to-end -end supply chain process would look like and how it would impact basically um, when you change something of the input variables. Um, and and I mean, and that's also what I learned when I was a consultant. When you give um, a leader of a company something to play with, it's like a, a little kid. Uh, the eyes light up and, and they can play with their own department or company's data and they switch around and they have uh, suddenly interesting questions and then they don't want to give it away anymore because you showed them something that they might like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, particularly when you when you talk about a system, a BI system or something like this, and you take, uh, we sometimes take, I uh, wouldn't call it fake data, but data that are pu public, you know, from a uh, company report or whatever, um, historical data, and then uh, the clients can play with data that are relevant, but not, you know, real uh, um, data, current data. Um, and you see how they like that. Even if this is old data, drill, to make the drill downs, to identify, you know, spots um, where they have an issue and they say, yeah, I, I remember two years ago, we had this issue exactly in that business or in this, this geography. And they start to feel um, how they could work with it, even if it's in, in a very restricted format because the data is not the current data and uh, the features are very limited at that point in time. But um, it, um, particularly when um, you know um, when when the customer does not yet know exactly how the result should look like, if they are still a little bit open in terms of technology and um, uh, or maybe also new to that technology, then that helps a lot. To, um, to make an impression of how the whole thing can look like at the end of the day. Yeah, I absolutely believe in what you just said. And I also experienced it myself when we were looking for an agency that uh, should help us build uh, a new website with some things that we wanted to have there. Um, there was only one that uh, basically created such a prototype um, going a little bit off topic showing what they thought might be interesting but still it was good to start a discussion and you saw that they put in some effort and they want to work with you the other ones just like said well this is what we'll do and this is the price yeah and if you want more uh, we can have a, a workshop but that costs you yeah um, and then yeah well who in the end uh, had the edge well the one that put in a little bit more effort at the beginning yeah and um but i assume it's not uh, it's it's not like you can, like every company can just say, I want to do rapid prototyping. You have to have some competencies on your team. Did you have to change something in your team or um, how did you enable your company uh, when doing such pitches uh, and where appropriate to develop such prototypes? Yeah, you're right. Um, it, sometimes it feels like um, rapid prototyping or doing something real is somehow forbidden in our society. You know, when I talk to students and we go, you know, through strategy work, and then we come to, you know, the, the early stages when rapid prototyping would be the right thing to do, it's such a hurdle. It's so, um, there, there's so much resistance in many of these students to really sit down with just a paper and to scribble something to go out to customers and ask, ask them, do you like it? It's not part of our business thinking that this is a good idea of doing at a very you know, strategic part of your process where you're still high level and, and, and so on and so forth. So um, th this is really something where we have to re-educate ourselves and um, you know, that uh, where, where design agencies and other uh, guys did a lot, uh, had a lot of impact also on the strategy work and how consultancies nowadays work very often. So, and, and also internally, what we really did is uh, we started for, for internal projects to ask our projects team, hey, let's have, let's, um, let's make a prototype. Can you show something? We did this um, little workshops where after one day, you have a prototype for whatever the, the problem is. And with these internal challenges, we uh, build up a little bit trust and 
um, uh, that, that that something like this can be of value. And at the end of the day, you know, the whole management team, also our owner and founder, they came and looked at all the prototypes and then we selected the project that we also um, uh, did for impl implementation. Um, and that was, I, I think we did this five, six years ago, and that was somehow the, the starting point for us also to uh, to use this externally with customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good that you mentioned that it's like a cultural change or a mindset shift, uh, and you have to get it into your own company as well. And that's a nice playbook that you mentioned that you start uh, on your own company, um, and um, and then you experience everything that your clients will experience later. Uh, you suddenly can discuss about something that you can see and maybe click and play around a little bit. And uh, you maybe see the excitement of the people that uh, are involved in the decision-making process. Um, so it's a good way. Yeah, um, We definitely um, should listen to this one here. That's cool. Um, in terms of know-how, so did you have to build up a additional know-how to build these prototypes or did you everything did you have everything already in-house well in our case we had a lot of know-how in-house because no matter if we do an mvp or click dummies or mock-ups you know we we have colleagues we have a um that are media um that are that come from our media unit creative colleagues that are used also to other methods and working with different tools. And so when you bring these together, what we did in this internal competition, then uh, you you have the right mix of people to um, uh, and, and, and the competence uh, in, internally. So in, in that case, um, that was really an advantage. Do you also measure the amount of um, basically in the end, it's time equals money of money you put into um, a proposal because of prototyping and is it uh, worthwhile doing that then? Yeah, that's a good question. So because you're right, prototypes are an investment that you make um, in the pre-sales process. It's mainly time, but but still sometimes it's, you know, or it's it's never just one hour. It, it's, uh, it is some time that, that you have to invest. Um, and it's totally fair to ask when that makes sense. Um, I would say when the project outcome is still vague, when the client has little experience with that specific technology, or if there is still a lot of open topics like, you know, different user groups, their user experience, the content structure, features, all of this is still very vague. And even people within the client organization have different understandings of how the project outcome could look or should look like. In those situations, I think prototypes can provide really good value um, for, for both for the client internally, but also for your dialogue with the client and the project proposal you make at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And for how many project proposals do you use roughly prototypes in percentage, if you could say? Um, well, meanwhile, what we what we do in, in some practices is that we have prototypes that we can reuse in many situations because they are already there. You know. And, and that helps because you bring a prototype already if, if this is suitable in your first presentation and, and um, without too much effort. If you, wanna, if you want, you can change the logo and little stuff. So it's really an hour investment. Um, so I would say in, 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 in some of our consulting practices, we are already having these prototypes as part of the standard sales presentation, but they are pre-configured. There's not going much investment anymore into the specific presentation. But um, the, the situation where we really sit down and we say, now we are building up a prototype and we are investing 10, 20, 30 days of work. Um, this is really rare. It's still something like one out of 10 or one out of 15, I don't know, we don't really measure it, but that would be the type of ratio 
I, I think that is realistic. Yeah, and you mentioned a really interesting point. You build up a prototype database over time. And uh, I mean, that's powerful because then um, it's a low time uh, time invest from your side, but the client doesn't see that it's low time invest from you. For the client, it's the first time they see something like this and they say, wow. And mm -hmm. you probably get better and better with the prototypes you show again and again. So it's, um, yeah, that's powerful. Really, really well done. Um, now coming to our last um, topic, um, which is a little bit of a mix. Uh, between the hybrid uh, conversation we had in the beginning and um, the different um, company departments you probably have. Let's maybe start with this. Do, what kind of units do you have within your company? Well, um, we have the consulting unit uh, that I'm belonging to, but then we also have a technical, strong technical unit uh, where we support R&D departments with electric, electronic uh, devices and services. So they are really strong, really innovative. Um, and then we have a third unit that is Star Media, where we have um, agencies and um, also consulting services around marketing topics, but more production-oriented, social media-oriented. Yeah, yeah. So... What are you doing to um, to bring those people from those different departments together? Because, I mean, they work together on projects, I assume. Um, and it would be beneficial that they not only see each other when they are on a project together, but well, know each other. Well, under uh, the leadership of our owner and uh, CEO, Sophia, we transformed our business um, into an, an agile organization. And uh, so with that role-based approach, we really push responsibility to the individuals, to individual contributors, and also enable a better cross-company cooperation in, in circles that go beyond the classic silos and, and hierarchies. Um, and uh, we use a software called Glassfog, who makes the, the way how we work um, transparent to everybody. And um, so we, we really open up the silos to a very transparent organization where you are um, asked as an individual to go where, wherever you want in order to fulfill your role and to go for your purpose. For people who don't fully understand what an agile organization represents, can you maybe quickly in one, two, three sentences explain what, what that means compared to traditional organizational structures? I, I can give you an example. In, in the traditional world, um, we, we had consulting uh, on the one hand side and on the other side, there was uh, marketing and media as a silo. And if we have a common project, we would bring people from both organizations together. We would call it a project or a task force. Um, but they would still report into their silos in the hierarchy. So many people would be involved, even if they don't contribute on the operational level. What we do now in, in an agile organization is that we build a circle. And the circle is called, in that case, merchandising. It is, um, you know, the purpose is um, to build up merchandising business. And we put in the people that contribute to build up and manage that merchandising business. Strategy consultants, logistics people, creative people, product management people, IT people. And now we have a team, that, and they are not doing this as a full-time job. Their, their role is maybe 10% of their capacity or maybe 50% or maybe full-time, but they have a dedicated role there for a certain time um, with a certain time spent, clear accountabilities, what they are do, and a common goal they are working for in that circle. But, you know, in, they're still belonging to or reporting to a boss that is in consulting or that is somewhere else in media. But they um, now they, with that circle, they have a clear purpose, they have a clear role, and they are working without 
a lot of interference between or of the other hierarchies that were there formerly. You know, they're very autonomous, independent, and um, that, that brings a lot of speed and dedication to the work. And, and that helped us a lot. And I assume it's fun for the employees to pick a circle that they like and to contribute there on top, no? Yes, and it uh, provides uh, more flexibility to work in different circles if you if this is something you like. You're not only in a merchandising circle. You could be there in a specific role. It's more a leadership role or a product management role or a sales role. But in a different circle, you could fulfill a totally different role if you like this, like you're more the administrator or looking at the financials or, or whatever. And um, that is a setup that, um, that uh, makes also your job, enriches your job life to a certain extent and helps the company because you're, you build up flexibility in um, bring resources to the challenges and projects you have without changing each time your structure. So each circle has a certain structure. You already named a couple of roles, and that is always the same, or does it change? The basic structure is is always the same. You know, each circle has um, um, a purpose, a domain of business, has some roles with people that fulfill these roles. And once you have a role, you have to be clear about your accountabilities, how you're measured. OKR is also something we, we use. Um, and, and then you typically have tacticals where you meet on a regular basis to manage your business. And you have government meetings where you change the structure if necessary. So this is the system that is always the same. But, you know, the content in terms of what you're working on and uh, to define which role has exactly uh, which expectation, um, that is each time different. Um, how does the software now help you in executing this agile approach? Well, the software we use, uh, Glasswork makes the way how the organization ticks transparent. And it fosters um, cross-unit cooperation with experts that uh, in earlier days were belonging to different units or to different silos. And that really drives our business and, and is really top. Can you give us uh, one or two examples of current circles that um, with, with a project that they are um, moving towards or with a, maybe the OKRs that you have in mind? Yeah, we well, there's one circle that I already mentioned, merchandising, um, where we see tremendous results because we are putting the whole merchandising business to a diff different level because we have there now strategy consultants in there And they have totally different thoughts about what merchandising could look like and how it contributes to your business. And we have logistics people there. And then we have people who think about business models for the for the client. And with one uh, numerous deals, more than one deal recently, uh, because the client feels there's everything together that I need in order to have good advice on the merchandising business. So that's a good example. Another example is we just last week founded a circle for our Munich business because we have there an office. We have customers, clients that are based in Munich. And we are with different units represented in Munich. So from marketing, from consulting, and from, I, from IT. Um, and we we felt we don't want to build up a typical um, uh, 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 structure like you have the head of Munich and then the complete to to think all the things through in a typical um, standard structure location structure uh, and and we thought hey maybe. A circle could be a good answer to facilitate the whole work that is needed in order to um, optimize the Munich uh, location, you know, in terms of new business, which markets, which clients, 
in terms of um, uh, new work, how do we meet, how many rooms do we need, how many square meters um, um, in terms of building up a team culture and atmosphere. So all of this is something that Circle can manage on themselves without the need for an extra manager. And so I, I can't tell you how it will, uh, um, how it's going to look like in, you know, um, um, maybe in, in one, two years, we will see how, how that developed. But it's um, that's also an example of where we apply the logic of um, ex agile organization and circles um, to also to, to, to save management or to, to reduce management um, uh, capacity uh, where we feel um, that can be done by the people that are really um, that are in, in charge of Munich, that are working in Munich, and they love to do this on their own. You mentioned OKRs. Um, so what do you, how, how did you do it in practice? Just to mention one, two, three objectives, or uh, you don't have to mention all the key results, but you already said some things like you want to have a team culture, you want to win clients. Uh, that sounded like objectives. Um, so you, you build a circle, or like I assume you build a circle, you align on objectives that could make sense. Uh, people can buy in and maybe make other suggestions and then you let them go. How, how are the steps uh, or how are the high level one, two, three, four, five steps from you have the idea of forming a circle to well, now it's operating and doing everything um, that we need in order to build up um, a successful Munich office? The good thing about... Um... Uh, agile organization, OKR, and the agile type of work is that it's not built in stone for 10 years. So you, you can change it after a certain period when you have the impression we should have different measurements, we should uh, should have a different measurement cycle or, or whatever. And then after a quarter or whenever you say, well, we don't measure sales meetings, we only measure contacts or we don't measure contacts, we measure new clients we, we meet with. You know, you, you can change this and uh, find the right um, approach that works in that circle. What we also did, just as the last comment, we have agile coaches internally. So coaches that are actually colleagues, but that have a certain level of education and that help us in, in such a case to when we build up a new circle as a, you know, coach, as a sparings partner for, for this team um, and to transfer the experience or the, the, the learning we had in other circles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the whole approach. Um, we already work with OKRs in, in my company. Um, but you always have side projects popping up, or side, uh, like things that are not in the in the big OKR picture that you that you that you made for that quarter for the next half year. And we have such a project coming up, and I thought, well, that is a good idea to to say we have a certain goal, who wants to contribute, um, and uh, these are the objectives that we have in mind, and um, and these are the roles that probably need to be filled. And so I'm going to try it out and see if it works for us. Yeah. So. Now we are already at the end of our conversation, um, Nikolai, and I have five rapid-fire questions lined up for you. Um, first question, what do you do to keep body and mind fit and sharp? <laughs> okay, well, I, I, I do like uh, different types of sports, uh, but I like running the most because it can be integrated so well in your everyday life and mm -hmm. in general. Um, do you have a favorite business book? Uh, I just finished Rethink New Work from Wolfgang Eckert, a quite comprehensive exploration of the new world of work. And yesterday I started reading Atomic Change, um, which really gives insight into, you know, how small habits can lead to tremendous change. We put both books into the show notes. Um, do you listen to podcasts when you're running or outside of running? Actually, yes. Also, when I'm running, um, I, I do have some favorite ones. I've uh, definitely listened to that podcast, but uh, <laughs> published <laughs> like, you know, from company uh, companies like McKinsey or BCG. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I also regularly listen to Lanz and Brecht. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we put them in the show notes as well. Um, who should be our next leaders in consulting podcast guest and why? Um, well, my friend Wolfgang is a smart guy who heads up a consulting unit for family businesses mm-hmm. in one of the big players. He has good insight into family-owned enterprises. That could be interesting. So it would be great if you could ask him if he would be willing to be a guest on the show. Sure. Um, would be happy to have him. And now you can directly address our audience. Is there anything, Nikolai, that we can help you with? Uh, well, I'm always happy to make new contacts with people who are dealing with similar topics. How can someone get in touch with you best? Well, you can best reach me via LinkedIn. I'm always on there. So it's Nikolai Stickel. It's N-I-C-O-L-A-I. And then um, last name Stickel, S-T-I-C-K-E-L. Yeah, perfectly. Yeah, that's that's how it is. The email address is at star-corporation.com or via LinkedIn. So it's Nikolai Dot. At star-corporation.com. Correct, yeah. Perfect. Thanks a lot. It was a true pleasure to have you on our show, Nikolai. It was a pleasure for me. Thanks. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at leadersinconsulting.com to get key takeaways from this podcast delivered straight to your inbox and to learn more about how you can join our community of consultancy leaders from around the world. You'd really make my day if you left us a review and subscribed to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. And who knows, maybe we can meet each other at the next Leaders in Consulting monthly meetup. Until then, have a great rest of your week. Your host, Sam.